Okay, this is recording. All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK, Yorkshire in particular. His name is John Hamer. He's an author of five, four books now. One is The Falsification of History, Our Distorted Reality. The next is two books about the Titanic. One is nonfiction. The other is a novel. The first one is RMS Olympic. Second is Titanic's Last Secret. And he's done two books about the banking industry, a volume one and two titled Behind the Curtain, a chilling expose of the banking industry. But tonight we're going to talk about some true crime. It's uh, about the, this Soham murder, the murder of two 10-year-old girls in, uh, east of London in the UK. And John has written an article uh, titled The Soham Scapegoat, It's a Gross Miscarriage of Justice. So we're going to talk about probably some uh, pretty sensitive material and, and stuff. So if you have any children or, or you're sensitive to these uh, kind of murders, please do not uh, don't listen or don't have this audio open. So, John, are you there? I am, William. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. And you've done uh, you've done some also some YouTube stuff. You had told me in the pre-show when we were talking that you also talked uh, about your Titanic material and you have a YouTube uh, presentation that's had over a half a million views. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did a lot of, uh, research on the Titanic and that was sort of the, the, the culmination of it and then followed by the books. Yeah. Cool. And so how did you be, you know, maybe before we can get started, you can talk a little bit about your background and how you got started writing these books and then how you came across this Soham case. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I spent most of my working life in it, um, chained to a, a corporate desk, uh, various roles within the IT industry until I was sort of forced into retirement a few years ago uh, through redundancy. And uh, I'd reached the age that, at that time that it was, you know, difficult to get a, a job in the IT industry because it's, it's a young world out there, you know, for, for IT people. Um, so I decided really to sort of uh, take up my hobby as a, a full-time thing really and that and that my hobby is alternative history and so i've started off writing a few articles here and there got them published on various websites and i thought hmm i can probably uh write a book now because I've, I've got enough uh, material and information and experience so i wrote the falsification of history which fortunately for me sold really well and continues to sell really well and from there, I, I went, branched into the Titanic research, did a lot of research on the real Titanic story, wrote a couple of books, as, as you rightly said, one's non-fiction and the other one is a novel. And uh, my latest book is the massive Behind the Curtain, as you say, volumes one and two, um, which is like sort of 600,000 words altogether. So it was that was a massive project. And I'm just about to finish my latest book, which is called JFK, A Very British Coup, spelled C-O-U-P. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's a slightly different angle on the on the JFK assassination story, um, which I think you know people may find interesting. But that, that's probably cool. going to be published in the next month or so. Great. Well, I look forward to uh, reading that. I'd be happy to interview about the, you about that book when that's completed. Um, but how Thank did you, yeah, yeah, how, how did you get involved in this uh, Soham case? And maybe you can give the listeners, at least the ones in the U.S. who may not have heard of the case, kind of a, a primer or a background about yeah. just the yeah. details of the case. Um, well, it came to my attention as, 
as part of uh, my general sort of research into alternative history, I guess. Um, and I, th I think everyone in Britain, I'm, I'm maybe not so sure about the States, but I think everyone in Britain was aware of it when it happened because it was headline news for, for weeks and weeks on end. You know, the, the papers and the TVs were, were full of it all the time. And basically, it, it, what the story is about, it's about two 10-year-old girls who were sexually assaulted and uh, murdered by uh, certain people. Uh, <laughs> and this is the controversy that we're about to talk about. Uh, these two 10-year-old these girls lived in a, a small market town in rural England. Um, and the incident took place in August 2002. And I, the, the problem is when the mainstream gets hold of a story, they really go to town with it, as you as you probably know. And I was absolutely shocked when I read certain, shall we say, criticism for what had actually gone on, gone on behind the scenes. And I started to look deeper into it, and I came across all sorts of interesting information that really made me think that actually the official story is not true at all. These two people that were accused, um, a gentleman by the name of Ian Huntley and his lady friend, Maxine Carr, who were uh, arrested and convicted of the murder, I believe, are totally innocent. Interesting. And the girls went missing the 4th of August. They were seen in uh, Manchester United shirts, red, bright red shirts. And, yes. Uh, you know, so there was some like about two weeks before these two suspects were arrested. Can you talk about how that investigation kind of uh, uh, went on? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean the the day of the day that the two girls disappeared, or it could have been the day after. Uh, but the, the 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 small market town of Soham was absolutely inundated with the world's press. Basically, these two young girls had gone missing, and uh, there was a massive manhunt going on in all the surrounding countryside. And uh, Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr were immediately put in the forefront uh, of the investigation, not so much because they believed them at that point to be uh, guilty necessarily, but because the, Maxine was a teaching assistant at the girls' school. I mean, it's only a very small community, don't forget. So more or less everyone knew everyone else, broadly speaking. And Ian was the janitor at a... Uh, at the local college, a very small college, but yeah, he was the janitor there. So th they, they both knew the girls and they uh, somehow the reporters homed in on them and they gave a very, shall we say, I would I would say a very credible account of their movements that day and and the fact that they were helping the police with their inquiries, not in the sense of being suspect, but just, you know... Right showing the police around the place, helping them to get around and, and look at the different locations and all that kind of thing. Right, so they were so interviewed they, they became by the, prominent yeah, even they were, before they became suspects. Right, so they were on video, they were being interviewed by all of these different media outlets, and there's video of them yeah. talking about the situation, correct? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. what led um, to their, their so, arrest? Sorry, sorry? Oh, I was just going to say, what led to them moving from you know, locals being interviewed to being suspects. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, um, I mean, the whole the whole premise of my investigation of my 
shall we say, belief in, in, in what happened is something that some people might think is fairly off the wall. But um, I believe what happened, they were just they were just handily placed at that time. And the police didn't really want to go to the places where they ought to have been going in order to properly invest the crime because of the political situation at that time in the UK. Um, do you want me to explain that a little yes, bit more? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Right, okay. Well, if the listeners cast their minds back to August 2002, they might recall that it was about six months before the invasion of Iraq um, with US and Britain, British forces invading Iraq. And at that time, obviously the British public and even the American public weren't aware that that was going to happen, but obviously that was in the pipeline politically. And Tony Blair and George Bush had already been colluding about a joint operation to move into Iraq later that year, well, in, in fact, in the following spring. And um, the last thing that Blair and his government needed was any kind of public opinion that was going to, shall we say, put American service people stationed in Britain in a very bad light. And it's significant that the village of Soham is about 10 miles from a huge, I mean, a massive USAF uh, base called uh, USAF Lake and Heath, which housed about 10,000 uh, American servicemen. Okay. Uh, some of them were stationed there permanently and some were, uh, it was used as a transit a stopover, if you like, from uh, troops going back and to from Afghanistan to the States. Obviously, it was a long hop. So they used to stop over at Lake and Heath a lot of the time. Sometimes they did that in Germany, but sometimes it was Lake and Heath. So there's a massive amount of uh, American servicemen moving in and out of that camp at all times. Uh, but the point, sorry, I've gone off the point a little bit there, but the point, the point of it is, is the fact that um, Blair could not risk uh, actually in, investigating as to whether the you know it could have possibly been an American serviceman uh, that, that had done this dirty deed uh, because he didn't want to turn public opinion against the U.S. or its servicemen in any way because of of what was about what was in the pipeline and what was right. about to happen. Like they in a few knew that time. it was going to happen. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, wow, so you know all these things were happening, and uh, but the other thing is that what we'll find out later is that the girls were found close to Lake and Heath, correct? They, they, they were found in a ditch on the perimeter fence of uh, Lake and Heath uh, airbase. Yeah, right. So that also kind of implicates these uh, Lake Lake and Heath and Mildenhall, these two yes. uh, American, and there's also Huge actually. Bases. Yeah, there's also Brit. You know, the uh, UK also does have some air bases around there as well. So there's a, there's definitely a military presence in that area. Mm. Huge military presence in that area. Yes. So um, the girls were found. Do you remember the exact date when they were found? They went missing the fourth of August. Do you remember when they were found? No, it yeah, was so- later that month. It was towards the end of August. I think it may, may, may have been. Not, not perhaps at the end, probably the middle of August. It was a couple of weeks. Right. So, but were they found after the arrest of Huntley and Carr or before? Do you know? They were found after the arrest. After, gotcha. So they didn't even have, but they also found that when the girls were found, they were uh, in an advanced state of decomposition, correct? 
Yes, they were. They'd been dead, obviously, for two or three weeks. Uh, I can't remember the exact time scale. Um, but it was also obvious that they didn't, they weren't put there uh, immediately after they died. They were, they were probably dumped there at some stage shortly afterwards. Gotcha. Um, so, In- uh, because so they would have been found a lot sooner if they had been. That, that was the point. So they must have been right. hidden away, and I suspect somewhere on the on the huge airbase. There's a lot of um, unused buildings, you know. Uh, Hangers, right. Yeah, exactly. And there would have been, you know, a myriad of places to hide a couple of uh, small bodies and then to dispose of it when the time was felt to be right. Yeah. And absolutely. the other thing is that that would have been, that was kind of a distance from where Huntley was residing. It was something like a 16-mile drive, right? If yeah, I think it. it was, It was. yeah, I think it was, 10 miles I had in my head, but you, you might be right. I, I can't remember the exact uh, mileage, but yeah, it was, a, it was, a, yeah, it was a bit of a drive. Um, not horrendous, but yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So what, you know, I mean, the other thing was why on earth would anybody in their right minds drive 10 miles and dump a body somewhere where it was, they were bound to be seen because there was so much, so many comings and goings of different people. You know, it, it was such a, a busy spot. I mean, no one in their right minds would, would drive from Soham to Lakenheath and dump it at the perimeter of, perimeter fence of a huge airbase where there was so much activity going on all the time. And monitoring, I mean, right? It, I mean, they monitor the yeah. perimeter. <laughs> so. Well, that, that, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, the, and what had happened was um, in the previous few weeks, as the build-up to Iraq, although it was still secret, was going on, they were they were uh, increasing all the security at all the bases. So they, they had this state-of-the-art security system put in. And importantly, I think this is very significant, actually, that it's known that the cameras, the camera positions were changed daily. And also, there were the, uh, the sweep of the cameras as to where they actually panned around that was also changed. The angles were changed all the time. So the, 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 there was a constant changing of, of so that, you know, even if there might have been blind spots here and there, you had to know exactly where those cameras were pointing and what their, their arc of sweep was um, to actually escape them. Now, Humphrey wouldn't have had a clue about that, whereas an American serviceman might have. I'm not saying definitely would have, but might have. It's certainly been a better position than Huntley to uh, to uh, you know um, to to understand exactly where the cameras lie and where they where their points of view were. Gotcha. And so uh, after their arrest, the oddity one they were they were taken to the Old Bailey in, in London, correct? Or he yes, was. they were. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that in itself was a strange thing. I mean, the old Bailey, uh, I don't know I don't know whether it's sort of famous in the States or not, but it's the most famous court in the UK, and it's where they take all the big high-profile cases. Um, but this, okay, yeah, it was a high-profile case, um, but usually for something of that nature, apart from the fact that this had been blown up into massive proportions by the press, just to... I believe just to get the point across that these people were evil and all the rest of it. Um, I believe that, uh, you know, it, it could have been done locally. I mean, it should have been done locally that there are, there are high courts all over the country and it's unusual, shall we say, for, for something like that to be moved to the old bail. 
Right, and then it's like even stranger things, according to your article, happened where Huntley was sectioned. I mean, it's kind of a term, a UK term, but sectioned three days after his arrest and sent to a mental institution. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I mean, um, they um, they immediately on his arrest, they, they, they tried to coerce and cajole him into confessing, which he re- flatly refused to do. Um, he, they actually leaked some information to the press, which is totally against, you know... Right. Unethical, illegal. What, what, what's right and what's wrong. Right. Yeah, illegal. Um, that he'd been arrested for, for rape a few years earlier. Well, it, that was true, but it, they didn't qualify it by saying, you know, by, by the circumstances. He was 16 and his girlfriend was 15 and he was actually arrested for, they had had consensual sex and he was a, a, actually arrested for statutory rape, which is the term for sexual intercourse with an underage girl, even if you're only 16. So, But they never qualified that. So it was splashed all over the newspapers and all over the TV and radio that Huntley was a rapist, you know, which is prejudicial. Prejudicial, you know, you, you, you cannot do release that kind of information before a trial, um, you know, because obviously the jury would have been aware of it and all the rest of it. Uh, so, that, you know, that's just one small thing that they did. Um, and then they, they brought in, after about three days when he'd not confessed, they brought in a, a team, not just a, but a team of psychiatrists who allegedly pumped him full of all sorts of stuff and he was certified insane and and carted off to the most brutal violent um uh hospital for the criminally insane in the uk and it's got an appalling reputation and that uh, hospital is called rampton in nottinghamshire and it's uh, apparently it's brutal so Uh, he just keeps getting moved around so he's uh, yeah in eastern yeah. UK, goes to London, sent off yeah. to Nottinghamshire. It's just very odd that he got this treatment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, the whole thing was just, none of it made any sense, unless you understand the, the background motivation, if you get what I'm saying. Right. It's, yeah, I mean, just to take everything at face value, that was the thing that struck me when I, when I read all this stuff. I thought, none of this sounds right. None of this sounds as though it's, um, you know... Uh, it's the way that things should be done, and it definitely isn't. But a lot of people don't look too deeply, as we know, and and, and these things just get glossed over, and people shrug their shoulders and get on with their life. And that's what the people who perpetrate this kind of stuff depend on, unfortunately. And he he had, there was no uh, forensic evidence they could find in his house or indicating in his car that he had transported any bodies, correct? Absolutely correct. They found no DNA in his home, where they eventually decided that that's where the murders had taken place. They found no DNA in his car uh, after he'd driven 10 or 16 miles or whatever the distance was on bumpy country roads with two bodies in the trunk. Um, they couldn't find anything. I mean, the the weakness of the case was highlighted for me by the fact that it, the prosecution in the trial actually, actually came out with a statement that he said that uh, one of the police officers that had gone to Huntley's home to examine it, one of the forensic guys, he'd smelled a lemony smell from a type of disinfectant indicating that Huntley had recently cleaned the house. Well, you know, I'm sure there must be a queue of uh, 
ardent criminals uh, queuing up to buy this uh, this magical lemony disinfectant that gets rid of all DNA traces. Um, you know, I'm sure that would be a massive bestseller in the criminal underworld. Right. You know, it just doesn't do that, does it? We know that cleaning does not remove DNA. There are always microscopes microscopic spots of DNA in any crime scene, any violent crime scene. Right, it would have had to have been And that was, that was the sum total of the prosecution's evidence in effect, uh, apart from the other lies that they told you know. Right, um, I think you had written that the prosecution stated that no one would have seen him dump the bodies right near a, dra- a ditch near this the lake in Heath, which you know, according to you and kind of how these air bases work there's all kinds of monitoring and video and all this stuff like that yeah absolutely absolutely and you know it's quite a busy road that runs past it as well you know so that there would have been traffic and you know i'd really believe for someone to put that body there i think it you know it would have been someone who knew um knew much more about that particular location than than huntley could possibly have done now they there's like uh you know when the trial started did Huntley ever make a statement or admission that the girls had died in the house? Had anything that he said never. implicate? Okay, because that he never he never said anything at all that would uh, implicate him in the crime. But again, this is where the lies coming in come in at the trial. The prosecution actually lied. By the way, Huntley didn't appear at his own trial. <laughs> That's amazing. Which, Believe it or not, yeah, Huntley did not even appear at his own trial. Um, and so this enabled the prosecution to, well, get away with, with lies. And then the lies that they told were that Hunt, A, that Huntley and uh, Cara had confessed, and B, that he admitted that the girls had ever been in his home. And, and both those statements were blatantly untrue. But, of course, that those statements were plastered all over the media the following day. And people, you know, if a lie, the old saying, isn't it? If a lie is repeated often enough, it becomes the oh, truth. That's true. And that is exactly what happened. Right. Well, I know similar things have happened in the West Memphis 3. They just keep repeating things. They, You know, these yes. guys are, they keep saying that uh, convicted for a crime they didn't commit and all this stuff. And it's like, well, um, all yeah. the evidence says something else. So the, uh, yes. so then car, a car, so... Huntley ends up. How do you know how long the trial was, or how what other elements show that or indicate that he was not involved in this death? Weren't the the oh they allege the prosecution alleged that the girls' two shirts were found at his place of work, correct? Yes, in a bin, a container. Um, he, he at the college where he worked, there was a, a huge sort of storage building. It was called a hangar. It wasn't like a uh, an airplane hangar. It was just a. It was just a, like the nickname for the building, if you like. It was called the hangar, and it was just where all the the general cleaning and uh, you know maintenance stuff, like the lawnmowers and all that kind of stuff, a big hut oh. in effect, where all that stuff was stored. And they found the shirts there, but that was that was quite a while after the event. And in the meantime, what they didn't tell you. Uh, certainly not after the shirts had been found, they told you beforehand, was that there'd been scores of volunteers roaming around that hangar looking for, um, you know, traces of the girls to see if there was anything there. You know, people are just completely, you know, if this was supposed to be or potentially a crime scene, the fact that they just allowed people 
to just roam all over the place. Uh, And, uh, you know, it it was crazy. But the significant thing is that obviously that was done and nothing was found. They were only found much, much later. So to me, that says it's obvious they'd obviously been planted. Um, Because surely Huntley wouldn't have been stupid enough to uh, stick them in a bin at the place where he worked. I mean, that would just be... Just be ridiculous. Were the girls when they were found? Did they were they n- nude? Were they did not have their clothes? Right. Yeah, they were nude. Gotcha. Yeah. Um. So so that was when they when they found it. Didn't they say that he tried to burn them or something? Like they were partially burned. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. It, it, it was yes. It was as though they'd um, sort of tried to burn them, but not succeeded. No, I mean those <laughs> even that is suspicious. Like well, exactly. I mean, what? those shirts, you know, soccer shirts, they just, you know, they're so flimsy. They would, they would just go up in a puff of smoke, basically, if you set fire to them. Um, maybe not quite as dramatic as that, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, right. it, it's not, they're not hard to burn, put it that way. Right. Well, it's even more suspicious that somebody would try to burn it and then do a half half mm. job and then yeah. save it. Like, it just doesn't, yeah. that, that's also like uh, evidence, evidence planting, you know. And there were, yeah, and there was no DNA of Huntley or Carr found on the shirts, and there was no DNA of the girls either found on the shirts, believe it or not. Right, oh, their own shirts, right? Yeah, the, the, those shirts are so easy to buy. I mean, you know, any sports shop in the UK, you could go in and buy a Manchester United shirt. You could buy them online. Sure. I think you could in 2002. But, yeah, um, yeah, they're, they're so easy to get hold of. I mean, they're, they're, they could have got those shirts from anywhere and planted them. You know, that wasn't a big deal. Um, so then uh, he, let's see, he, let's see. So, so do you think that the uh, the the mental illness was not an attempt by Huntley to feign mental illness, or do you think that they wanted to impose mental illness upon him? Yeah, I think they wanted to impose mental illness on him because they didn't want him to a appear at his, his own trial. And B, talk to anyone ever, ever afterwards again. I mean, I, you know, I think the poor guy was probably subjected to stuff that like that goes on in Guantanamo and, uh, you know, the Soviet gulags of, of yesteryear. You know, I, I think it would have been that kind of scenario. Maybe not as extreme as that, to be fair, but there would certainly been a lot of sleep deprivation, I guess, and all that kind of good stuff. You know, that the uh, that the uh, the uh, uh, police get up to and whoever else was involved probably mi5 uh i would imagine too which is you know the the british securities internal security service right. um, um yeah i mean it, it i think they would have pumped, they certainly would have pumped him full of drugs i mean I, I bet the poor guy doesn't know whether he's dead or alive at the minute i mean i'm sure he's, he's been subjected to some awful stuff well, he, uh, you know that he tried to commit suicide. Um, yeah. Yeah. June taking twenty nine antidepressants. How he had yeah. the ability to obtain twenty nine antidepressants while he's in Milton Keys Woodhill Prison is is another question. Yeah. But, well, yeah. So that, that it is. It's, it's a very good question as well, actually. But his uh, his supposed accomplice, uh, Carr, uh, she is out of jail, right? Yeah. I mean, she was actually acquitted. I mean. I believe, I think she was, she wasn't charged, I don't think she was charged with the murder, I think she was, she was given a lesser, uh, a lesser charge for uh, implicating Huntley. 
I think that she was, she lied yeah, for him. Yeah, that's what, right. That was the one, which just basically means lying to. I don't know if they have the same phrase in the states, but it just means lying to the police, basically. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, and she either she, she either she got off from it. I can't remember whether she was acquitted or whether she just she was found guilty and just served a very short sentence. But she was she was out very quickly anyway, and she and she was given a new identity and uh, you know, right? She similar to the witness protection. Right, she served twenty one months and then tried to oh, did she? sell right. a book. I don't okay. even know what happened and whether that book came out or anything like that. Yeah. To be fair, I didn't follow her case up at all. I didn't really sort of follow what happened to her. I was more concerned with Huntley. Um, so, yeah, you, you could well be right. I've not really uh, researched that aspect of it at all, to be fair, William. So your thir- your theory of the case, not Huntley, that there, the interest of the government was to cover up any type of murder by somebody from an American airman and yep. in the interest of continuing down the road towards war with Iraq. Nothing exactly. that would make the Americans look bad, which, you know, we talked in the pre-show about how many, you know, how many incidences of American troops brutalizing mm. the local public there are in the world, really. It's not just, yeah. it wouldn't be just in the UK, it would no. be in uh, Okinawa, all over the place, yes. really. I mean, even in Haiti, people who were established in, in peace, so-called peacekeeping missions often are implicated in all types of vicious abuse, whether it's in Africa... Mm. Or even even uh, Iraq, for that matter. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, anywhere where there are foreign, you know, troops stationed, there's going to be that kind of thing. You know, to, I don't think it's a, a peculiar issue to the American forces. And you know, as I said to you as pre-show, um, you know, British troops have got a pretty bad reputation for it as well. And you know, I think, as you said, it's 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 symptomatic of that kind of they live in a brutal environment don't they that you know the whole lives are about brutalization of either the enemy or, or you know and so it's, it's hardly unsurprising that it's hardly surprising that they do behave in that way because they're surrounded constantly by violence and they're right. encouraged all the time to be violent and if i may touch on something else as well sure at the t- at the time you know connected at the, at the time and probably still going on now, American troops are subjected to all kinds of, you know, vaccinations. Of, and, and a lot of the time, I have to say, these vaccinations are untested. Right. Now, at that time, there was a particular, uh, I don't know the name of it, but it was a, an anti-malaria drug, which had been given en masse to American troops everywhere. And it was later discovered that it actually in, encouraged violence and... It also um, it created psychotic episodes. Wow! Yeah, probably by design, right? They probably were given Possibly. that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised at all if the American military did that. They, we yeah. know militaries have dosed people. The Nazis gave their troops, you know, uh, amphetamines and all kinds of things. You know, Call yeah, them. sure. Yeah, so. And there was one particular incident as well. You know, uh, harping back now to what you you were just saying about American troops all over the place. Um, strangely enough, in that same week that um, the two little girls were killed, um, four American service wives were killed by their four husbands. Wow. At the same time, upon their return to the States, uh, to Fort Bragg in North Carolina, if that means yeah, anything no, to it anyone. Yeah, it does, Absolutely. 
Yeah. Now, that was the same week that these these little girls were murdered. Now, is that a coincidence or what? You know, it, it just it certainly begs the question. You know, five incidents, in effect, of, of extreme violence like that. Yeah. And four, all at the same, you know, army camp, army base, uh, as well as, you know, the incident in England as well. And it just makes you wonder whether, you know, there is any connection there. Well, those are the stories that come forward, too. You have to imagine that there's a military's real uh, goal in these stories is to cover them up and not talk about them publicly. And they've had, you know, people trying to leak information and leak videos and things like that. But, uh, you know, what you see in the public is disturbing, but it doesn't mean that that's all of the incidences that are occurring. No, so, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, in Iraq, I know on your on your vaccine point, I remember that there were stories in the Iraq war where, the, I mean, maybe it was the malarial drug. I thought there was an anti-anthrax drug they were giving them that ended okay. up uh, making a lot of people sick. And there was actually uh-huh. an... Uh, movement within the military to refuse these uh, vaccines. Really, they used a religious excuse, but they really just were uh, concerned about their health. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it it, it could be, it could be that I've confused it. I don't think I, but it could be that I've confused it for anthrax. So there could be two separate things going on, which wouldn't surprise me either, you know. Yeah. No, it's remarkable. So, yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely... Story. I mean, you we you can talk about my lie in Vietnam. You can talk. I mean, the whole Vietnam War was an exercise in incredible brutality against the civilians. You know, just you know. So these mil the military bases definitely, and you have people filtering back from Afghanistan. You know, yes, uh, which where there are abuses and people see things a lot differently. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, it's plausible. Yeah, definitely plausible. Yeah, definitely. And so what else, uh, so Huntley is going to be in jail till for the rest of his life, correct? I think he's, what, 40, 47 yeah. now? Yeah, I, I'm, he will be. I mean, he was in his early 30s when it happened, or late 20s. So, yeah, it'll, be, it'll probably be mid to late 40s now, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's definitely there for life. They'll never let him out. Let, let him out. It'd be too dangerous to do it, wouldn't it? They couldn't, they couldn't let him loose on the, uh, on the public, really, could they? I mean... You know, not because of it's a danger to them, but I mean because of what he might say. Right. Well, the other one of the other things that's suspicious about the case is how one person controls two two people. You know, that's that's another concern. I mean, if they if he didn't make it, I mean, they suppose he supposedly confessed to getting the children into his house, but I don't know how that confession took place. Well, yeah, he didn't. He didn't confess. They said that he'd confessed, he but he confessed. didn't. Right. Yeah. Um, but as you say, if he had, how would he have managed to control two girls on his own? Good point. He, I don't know. he just it's, it's not so even even ten year even even tiny ten year old girls. It's not possible to, you know, uh, to actually deal with two at once if, if you're trying to do them harm, is it? Because one will wriggle away if you're concentrating on the other one. It's just it's just not feasible. I don't think anyway. Yeah, it's very odd. I mean, there's just a lot of oddities in those cases. The fact that he's moving around, yeah. that he's, he suddenly goes insane. So you have mm. pictures of him or videos of him talking to the media in a very, you know, uh, sensible way, and then all of a sudden, two weeks later, he's crazy, and they're, you know, they're sending him to this yeah. uh, Nottingham or whatever. Yeah, Brampton. Yeah, Brampton. Right. 
Yeah. Um, is there any? There's also, I was reading some of these other cases that he was investigated. People, uh, two of the Cambridgeshire officers were um, investigating suspects in Operation Or, which was like a child porn. Or That's something. right. Yeah. So yeah. even the people investigating these cases were uh, suspicious. Yeah, and one of them was actually uh, because he was. I think what was happening was he wasn't going along with the official line. And uh, they actually accused him of of being a paedophile himself. So he was the guy investigating the paedophiles, but he was actually accused of being a paedophile. But it was just a, again, it was a fit up, you know, frame, a frame up just, you know, for, for actually stepping out of line, I, I think. And uh, I, I, I didn't follow that through. I can't remember what actually happened to the guy, but I just I just remember reading that particular thing. And have you heard of uh, Mark Richard Hobson? Didn't he have an encounter with uh, Huntley? Did you hear that? No, I didn't. Yeah, know. I guess he tried, Hobson tried to kill Huntley in jail. Hobson, Hobson was a multiple killer or something in Yorkshire. Do you remember? Do you know that story? No, I don't. Yeah, I guess yeah, there was something about it. Killed four people in North Yorkshire, England in 2004. Okay, yeah, that sounds... That sounds familiar. I mean, yeah, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't recall the name, but uh, yeah. Um, is there anything else we missed, or any other points you would want well, to there's make? There's one or two things we could pick up on here. Um, you know, for instance, you know, the the Huntley's defence. I mean, the guy wasn't there at the trial, but you know, he should have, he should still have had a defence. I mean, the defence was totally complicit with the prosecution. They never questioned anything that the prosecution offered. You know, it was a very weak attempt at, at defence. Um, you know, there were lots of points that the prosecution was making, such as the lies, for example, that a competent defence should have absolutely torn to shreds. But they didn't. You know, they just allowed everything to pass. It was it was just like a show trial, really. It was like, you know, a, a Nazi or a, a Soviet show trial. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was it was a farce from, from top to bottom. Do you... Uh, I mean, there are claims that Huntley was a repeat sexual offender. Do you f- believe that there's no. any legitimacy to that? No, not at all. No, he, he was he was indicted for statutory rape when he was 16 years old because he had sex, consensual sex, with his 15-year-old girlfriend, and that was blown up out of all proportion. And I, and I guess that might be where that story emanated from. Because there, are, you know, there's been other reports of like other uh, that he was involved in other abuses or whatever. Um, no, I don't believe that. I really don't believe that. Interesting. Okay. Um, I wonder when did when did Doctor oh, Kelly Doctor Kelly died a year later? That was involved in the Iraq War too, so that hadn't happened yet. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, he was for those who, who are not aware of David Kelly, uh, um, he was found dead in a in a field near his home, uh, allegedly of suicide, but he had been. Someone who'd been a, a a weapons inspector in Iraq, and had come back and written a report that said there were no weapons of mass destruction anywhere in Iraq. Right. And so he didn't last too long after that. Right. And it was there was a dossier that he contradicted. Right. So there That's was right. a, there was a do- yeah. they called it the dodgy dossier. He said that there's no merit. Dodgy dossier. And yeah. there and he's dead. Suspicious circumstances. So that's another. I'm not saying it's associated if. Huntley and Carr didn't do it, and somebody else did. But there's also this push, even in the states. Anyone who was against the war, um, yeah, you know, here, the, I mean, 
it's still dangerous to talk about the people who died uh, yeah. who were against the war over Iraq. So it's, uh, yeah. it's pretty bad. Yeah. To go against, somebody once said to me, to go against, uh, you know, any prominent person who goes against the government line, uh, it's a very uh, unusual way to commit suicide. Right. Well, very true. I mean, even here in the States during Vietnam, once uh, Martin Luther King started speaking out Vietnam, he was dead, you know. So yeah. a lot of the, and the people who replaced uh, Martin Luther King weren't as outspoken against Vietnam. So uh, it's yeah. very interesting how these uh, public figures can suddenly die. So it's not outside of the mm-hmm. realm of possibility that these military guys are involved or involved in real brutality. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I believe, well, obviously I do, because I mean, that, that's what I've written about. And that's the conclusion I've come to. But I believe I believe it was an American serviceman. I have no idea of names or anything like that. And I don't think we will ever will know. But it is my belief based on the evidence that I've uncovered and the, um, you know, just the very uh, substance of the, the, the whole incident if you like that that it was an american serviceman that carried out and i think it, it could only have been an american serviceman that carried out and the fact that you know the the iraq war was looming six months hence um is just sort of a the icing on the cake for that really right. because that because that gives the government a motive to actually create two scapegoats which is what they did right take a guy without very many uh, resources who you know they can tie it's very strange yeah supposedly drove i guess it was hmm. 12 miles is the actual distance between his house and the, the military base so yeah it was around that sort of figure yeah i can't remember well, they've the done they did things like that here in the states the fbi framed a couple guys they actually sued in one regarding the uh anthrax documents if you remember the anthrax cases that happened after yes. 9-11 there was all kinds of super dodgy prosecutions actually yeah. and one guy committed suicide supposedly another guy i think he was a doctor from south africa I can't remember his name, but there were all kinds of trying to label on him. And he won a multi-million dollar judgment, if my memory serves me correct. Uh, there's really? a professor, yeah, professor out of, uh, whose name escapes me right now, who covered the real kind of machinations, the Byzantine machinations of these uh, inquiries mm. into the anthrax. And they, they were definitely trying to, I mean, in my opinion, they were definitely trying to find somebody to blame who wasn't the perpetrator of the anthrax yes. letters. So yeah. and with all kinds of propaganda and all kinds. So these these do happen. You know? I'm sure it goes on all the time. And, and a lot of the time we won't even realize it. It's just every now and again, something happens and uh, a red flag is raised and, and you can actually go in and have a look at the the um, the evidence and examine it for yourself um, and, and come to your own conclusions. But a lot of the time, I guess it's. It's sort of more kept in the in the closet, if you like, and it's not possible to do that. But uh, I'm sure it still goes on. All right, John, we are now at the 45 minute mark, um, and you, where's that presentation on the Titanic? Where, do you know what uh, what the title of that presentation is? Um, I can tell you in one second. Was well, there anything about um, the Soham case that we didn't cover that you want to to find? No, I think okay, good. I think that. Oh, I think um, that was a good ending. Yeah. Um, we're still recording, but, uh, so you have a f- half a million YouTube view thing on the Titanic. Um, uh, yeah. while you're looking at that, maybe, uh, where can people find your work? Okay. Um, yeah, if, if you go to amazon.com or amazon.co.uk, um, and search for 
John Hamer. Search in the book sections for my name, John Hamer. They're all on a page there. Gotcha. It's H-A-M-E-R, just like it sounds. Yes. The, the YouTube video, H-A-M-E-R, yes. The YouTube video is called The Titanic Conspiracy, The Great Deception by John Hamer. Gotcha. That would be very interesting. And the books, again, The Falsification, falsification of History, Our Distorted Reality, RMS yes. Olympic, that is the nonfiction uh, version. Behind yes. the Curtain, A Chilling Exposé of the Banking Industry, Volume 1 and 2, and then yes. a novel, Titanic's Last Secret. And you also do, do you have other, do you have a blog or... You write articles, is that correct? Yeah, I have a I have a website, yeah, a blog with uh, with articles on there, which I update not as often as I would like to, but uh, it does get updated quite a bit. There's about 150 articles on there, um, and that is falsificationofhistory.co.uk. Gotcha, cool. All right, John Hamer, go check out his stuff, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to d- discuss this case. Thank you, William. It's been my pleasure to speak to you. All right, cool. All right, I just stopped the recording.